It was just after Christmas, 1886, but in sunny Honolulu, it was still as balmy as the middle of summer. Sanford Dole was walking around town when he ran into his young colleague, a man named Lauren Thurston. Dole and Thurston were both members of the Hawaiian legislature, but the idea Thurston had to discuss that day wasn't exactly legal. Thurston said he'd been speaking with a friend about, quote, the importance of organizing. Dole knew right away what he meant. Organizing against their biggest political enemy, King Kalakaua, the head of Hawaii's constitutional monarchy. And Thurston wasn't talking about giving speeches and signing petitions. No, he was recruiting a secret society of allies who would call themselves the Hawaiian League. And within a few years' time, these men would be responsible for the very first U.S.-sponsored overthrow of a foreign government. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For the next two episodes, we're doing something a little different. We're looking at actual conspiracies that changed American history. We're covering two moments where absolute power corrupted absolutely. We'll see how authority, when placed into the wrong hands, can defy the laws of our government and give people more agency than the president himself, especially when it's under the false pretenses of benefiting the greater good. There's often a grain of truth in the theories we cover, but these stories are 100% confirmed. Almost everything we'll discuss in these episodes has been proven as fact. Today, we're looking at the calculated events that led to Hawaii becoming a U.S. territory. The Kingdom of Hawaii was once its own country, ruled by a constitutional monarchy, until a secret society of businessmen conspired to take the islands for the United States successfully. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. 
get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Long before Hawaii was the 50th U.S. state, it was its own kingdom. In 1795, the islands were united under the reign of King Kamehameha, and for most of the next century, it was ruled by his descendants, Kamehameha II, III, IV, and V. During those years, the Hawaiian islands underwent a great deal of change, Foreign trade flourished. Kamehameha III created Hawaii's first constitution and declaration of rights. But the biggest changes were due to some unassuming visitors, American missionaries. The first missionaries arrived from Boston in 1820, and in the coming decades, hundreds followed. They introduced Hawaii to Western concepts, Things like Christianity and written language. And, of course, disease. Over the next century, the native Hawaiian population was unintentionally decimated. They went from 300,000 people to around 40,000. The missionaries were still a minority in the islands, but they became a powerful minority. At the time, Hawaii had no concept of private land ownership. So the missionaries laid claim to all the prime agricultural land that, on paper, didn't belong to anyone. Soon enough, they convinced the king to change the land ownership laws and legally grant them the plots they were occupying. They used that land to plant sugar, a lucrative crop that thrived in Hawaii's tropical climate. By the 1950s, sugar production was booming, and a handful of foreigners were very, very rich. So rich that these former missionaries and their descendants now controlled most of Hawaii's economy, which gave them serious political influence, even though they were vastly outnumbered by native Hawaiians in the legislature. And in 1874, they saw an opportunity to exercise that influence. That year, the last king of the Kamehameha dynasty died without a successor. It was up to the legislature to name the new monarch. There were two contenders. The former, Queen Emma, widow of Kamehameha IV, or a respected 37-year-old nobleman named David Kalakaua. Emma had far more support among native Hawaiians, but Kalakaua was favored by the business community and the English press. This also made him popular among the political class. So when the legislature came to a vote, Kalakaua won by a landslide. (laughs) 
The decision was met with outrage from the crowd gathered outside the courthouse. A riot erupted, with Emma's supporters rushing into the building and attacking legislators. Things got so out of hand, the king-elect Kalakaua requested support from the American and British warships in the harbor. Foreign troops swarmed Honolulu to break up the crowd and guard the palace and courthouse from any further attacks. The next day, King Kalakaua was sworn in, quite literally under the protection of the United States Army. But Kalakaua didn't remain an American favorite for long. Almost the moment he took the throne, the white businessmen who'd supported him began seeing him as an enemy. Their grievances were petty. They complained that Kalakaua had wasted too much money on his coronation ceremony. He'd taken a bribe from a Chinese opium seller. He decided to mint Hawaiian coins in San Francisco with a hefty commission going to a rival Californian businessman. In short, he was doling out power to everyone except them. Which is why, one evening in late 1886, a small group of men gathered at the Honolulu home of a man named Sanford B. Dole. Dole was one of the leaders of the legislature's reform party, a faction of white businessmen and lawyers who openly opposed King Kalakaua. At 44 years old, with a long gray beard and a handlebar mustache, he looked more like an old-fashioned missionary than a politician, although maybe it ran in the blood. His father was, in fact, one of the many missionaries who'd come there from New England. Dole and his colleagues knew their grip on political power was tenuous. Despite their money and influence, they were at the mercy of a king who didn't always share their interests. And a legislature where they would always be a minority. To gain the control they wanted, they'd have to make some changes. Their goal? Organize the Westerners in Hawaii and bend the king under their influence. And they created a secret organization to get the job done. They called it the Hawaiian League. The League didn't keep any records, so we don't know exactly what was discussed at their meetings. But we do know that their numbers swelled quickly. Within months, the four founding members had recruited nearly 400 white men from across the islands. The organization's driving force was a 28-year-old firebrand lawyer named Lauren Thurston. Like Sanford Dole, Thurston was born in Honolulu to missionary parents. He'd been elected to the legislature earlier that year and was one of the king's harshest critics. Many of the League's members, like the cautious Dole, merely wanted to restrain the king's power with a new constitution. But Thurston was more radical. He wanted the king out of the picture entirely. Thurston drafted the group's constitution and laid out the structure of the executive committee, which became known as the Directorate. It was named after the government that ruled France following the revolution. And like the French revolutionaries, the directorate was willing to use any force necessary to dethrone the king. In preparation for an armed rebellion, the Hawaiian League imported an illegal shipment of guns and ammunition and dispersed it to their members. They also enlisted the help of a volunteer militia called the Honolulu Rifles. Officially, the rifles served the Hawaiian government, 
but its ranks were made up of white men, many of whom were involved in the Hawaiian League. That included their own commander, Volney Ashford, a veteran of the American Civil War. With around 200 men at their command, the Honolulu Rifles became the unofficial military arm of the Hawaiian League. Everything was falling into place. They just needed a plan to strike. At first, the directorate planned to assassinate King Kalakaua. In fact, they allegedly went so far as drawing straws to decide who would do the deed. According to the rumors, Sanford Dole drew the short straw, but he chickened out at the last minute and the whole plan fell apart for the time being. But at the same time, King Kalakaua was doing some plotting of his own. He wanted to create a confederation with other Pacific islands. In February 1887, he signed an alliance with the King of Samoa. Kalakaua was shoring up power and international allies, which was the last thing the Hawaiian League wanted. They hoped that eventually Hawaii would be annexed by the United States. Building solidarity with other Pacific islands was a step in the opposite direction. Meanwhile, anger was simmering in the white business community at large. Afraid of a riot, Kalakaua had the palace surrounded by armed guards, which only led to more public anxiety. And the radical faction of the Hawaiian League, led by Thurston, was growing increasingly militaristic. They would accept nothing less than a complete overthrow of the monarchy. Even some of the organization's other leaders were afraid Thurston was taking things too far. After a particularly tense meeting in June, Sanford Dole resigned from the directorate, accusing the radicals of causing a, quote, crisis in league affairs. Still, the Hawaiian League pushed on without him. On June 30th, 1887, nearly every business in Honolulu closed shop for the afternoon. The city's white merchants and businessmen had other plans that day. A mass meeting at the Honolulu Rifles Armory. The meeting was chaired by Peter C. Jones, the president of one of the biggest corporations in Hawaii. He opened the discussion mildly, claiming they'd assembled, quote, in a constitutional manner to ask the king for better governance. But other Hawaiian League leaders pushed him out of the way and cut to the chase. They wanted the king out of power. Constitution be damned. The plan was to take to the streets, surround the palace with armed men, and press the king for a new constitution, one that would limit the monarchy's power. But King Kalakaua was fully aware of the plot. While the meeting was in progress, Honolulu Rifles Commander Volney Ashford received a letter. He'd just been instructed by the king to mobilize his men and to immediately put down the rebellion. Little did the king know, the rifles were part of the rebellion. Appearing to follow orders, Ashford brought his troops into the streets, bayonets drawn. But it soon became clear. Ashford wasn't under the government's command. If fighting broke out, the Honolulu rifles would side with the rebels. When the meeting at the armory was over, a committee of Hawaiian League members marched over to the palace. 
They presented Kalakaua with a list of demands, calling on him to appoint a new cabinet and draft a new constitution. To their surprise, the king agreed to the demands immediately. Kalakaua could see the writing on the wall. If he didn't acquiesce, there would be violence, and his side was outmatched. The following afternoon, the king's new cabinet was announced. He appointed four Hawaiian League members to cabinet posts, including Lauren Thurston as interior minister. Now firmly in control of the government, the League got to work on a new constitution. It only took five days to complete the document, which essentially stripped the king of his power. He wasn't allowed to act without the consent of his cabinet, and he lost the authority to remove cabinet members without the legislature's approval. The monarchy was now controlled by the Hawaiian League. The League also changed several literacy and income requirements for voting. Now, three-quarters of Native Hawaiians weren't qualified to vote. But all American and European men who met the requirements could vote, even if they weren't Hawaiian citizens. There were also property and income requirements for all legislature candidates, which barred many Native Hawaiians from serving in their own country's government. When King Kalakaua was first presented with the new constitution on July 6th, he refused to sign it. He knew he'd be handing over his entire kingdom to a handful of white businessmen, cultural foreigners who only made up 3% of the population. But outside the palace, the streets were swarming with militiamen who answered to the Hawaiian League. Now, his only defense was the Royal Household Guard, and if it came to a fight, they didn't stand a chance. Kalakaua only had two options. He could either sign the document with or without bloodshed. By sundown, he gave in. The document became known as the Bayonet Constitution because it had been forced on the king with a threat of violence. Among native Hawaiians, many saw the Bayonet Constitution as a betrayal. They were outraged that their king had signed their rights away without putting up a fight. Over the next two years, there were two attempts made by Native Hawaiians who wanted to dethrone Kalakaua, but both plots were quickly thwarted. However, just three and a half years after the Bayonet Constitution was signed, King Kalakaua died at age 54. He was succeeded by his sister, the 52-year-old Lily Ukalani, and she wasn't rolling over without a fight. Coming up, the new queen goes head-to-head with the Hawaiian League. They're responsible for some of the most horrifying acts of violence ever known. Men and women who went to lethal extremes. But why? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, follow the life and crimes of an actual murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers examines the psyche of a killer, their motives and targets, and law enforcement's pursuit to stop their spree. Listen now and catch our special series on manhunts, where we follow the processes police use as they hunt for murderers in treacherous terrains and unusual locations. 
Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Now, back to the story. As the Bayonet Constitution was being signed in the summer of 1887... Princess Lily Ukulani was in England for Queen Victoria's Jubilee. When she returned to Hawaii that fall, she was astonished to see what had happened in her absence. Lily Ukulani was furious with her brother for signing over his power to the Hawaiian League. When she inevitably took the throne, her first priority would be to scrap the bayonet constitution and return power to the native Hawaiians. The moment of truth came in 1891, when King Kalakaua died of kidney disease on a trip to California. News of his death reached Hawaii on January 29th. That same day, Liliuokalani was announced as the new queen. As part of her swearing-in, she had to take an oath to abide by the bayonet constitution, which she did. But after the ceremony... Her first official act was asking the entire cabinet to resign. Under the new constitution, the monarch couldn't dismiss cabinet ministers. But Liliu Kalani argued that the old cabinet's terms had expired with her brother's death, and the kingdom's highest court of law agreed. It gave Liliu Kalani the legal authority to kick the Hawaiian League out of the cabinet. Soon after she took the throne, mass petitions circulated among native Hawaiians, urging the queen to draft a new constitution. And according to the rumor mill, she was already working on it. As for the Hawaiian League, they just lost their majority in the legislature, especially after another round of elections that was held in February 1892. But they refused to give up on regaining their power against the queen. Lauren Thurston knew something had to be done. In February 1892, he met with a group of white Honolulu businessmen in his law office. They all agreed that the best way to protect their interests was for Hawaii to be annexed by the United States. In addition to giving America political control of the islands, annexation would eliminate the steep tariff on goods imported to the U.S., It was a win-win. Thus, they formed a new secret society, the Annexation Club. Unlike the Hawaiian League, this group remained small, never gaining more than 17 members. Their first order of business? Feel out the enthusiasm in Washington. Thurston spoke to the U.S. minister to Hawaii, 71-year-old John L. Stevens, who strongly supported the idea. Stevens hated all monarchies, and he'd clashed with Lily Ukulani since the beginning of her reign. Minister Stevens knew the Secretary of State would be on board as well. Conveniently, Thurston was on Hawaii's Board of Commissioners for the World's Columbian Exposition. 
The event was happening the following year in Chicago, but he had to head there soon to start preparations. And while he was in Illinois, he figured he could easily take a detour to D.C. to speak with the secretary. As planned, he and the other commissioners arrived in Chicago that April. In May, Thurston snuck away for a whirlwind week in the Capitol. Armed with a letter of introduction from Minister Stevens, he visited the Secretary of State, James Blaine. Thurston came right out and said what was on his mind. He wanted to overthrow the Queen of Hawaii and annex the islands for the United States. Blaine was keen on the idea, so keen, in fact, that he sent Thurston next door to talk with the Secretary of the Navy, B.F. Tracy. Thurston walked over to the Navy Department building and immediately got an audience with the Secretary. Tracy liked the idea of a permanent naval base in Hawaii, so he walked Thurston right over to the White House to see what President Benjamin Harrison thought. Thurston waited in the anteroom while Secretary Tracy spoke to the Commander-in-Chief. Half an hour later, Tracy emerged with good news. If someone just so happened to overthrow the Hawaiian monarchy, President Harrison would be on board with annexation. Within the course of a few hours, the executive branch had pledged their approval of an armed coup against a foreign government. Of course, it didn't take long for the Queen to hear about Thurston's trip to D.C. She knew the annexationists were shoring up support. If she wanted to hold on to her power, she had to act soon. On the morning of January 14, 1893, Lily Ukalani summoned her cabinet to the Iolani Palace. When they arrived, she dropped a bombshell. That afternoon, she was going to present a new constitution, and she expected them to sign it. The ministers were stunned. They hadn't even seen this new document, but they could guess what was in it. She wanted to undo the reforms of the Bayonet Constitution and return more power to native Hawaiians. Right after meeting with the Queen, the Interior Minister John Colburn walked downtown to Lauren Thurston's law office. He informed him that they've, quote, been having a hell of a time up at the palace. Thurston then took Colburn to meet with two members of the Annexation Club, Attorney William O. Smith and former Supreme Court Justice Alfred Hartwell. They told Colburn not to sign the new constitution. They'd gather up some businessmen and get the pieces together for a mass protest against the Queen. Meanwhile, at noon, the government met to close the legislative session. As Queen Liliuokalani strolled up to the platform, she noticed the chamber was half empty. The entire Reform Party was absent. That was surely a bad sign. The Queen delivered the customary speech, then she and her cabinet retreated to the office next door, where various officials and diplomats came to pay their respects. After all the guests had been received, the Queen's Chamberlain announced a special meeting would be held at the palace at 2 p.m. Everyone in the room was invited. That included Sanford Dole, who was now serving on the Supreme Court. But Dole decided not to attend the afternoon meeting. He had a feeling trouble was afoot, and he'd rather not be there for it. 
By this point, rumors of the new constitution had already spread through Honolulu. Before the session was over, a massive crowd had gathered outside the palace. Most were native Hawaiians, hopeful of change. But troops lined the streets, prepared for backlash from the annexationists. After the session, the cabinet gathered in the attorney general's office to discuss their options. Instead, they were surprised to find Hawaiian League members like Lauren Thurston and William Smith there, waiting for them, hoping to make a deal. Thurston told the ministers they should declare the Queen's behavior an act of treason and call for her immediate removal from the throne. The ministers were hesitant, so Thurston picked up a pen and started writing the declaration himself. That morning, the USS Boston had docked in Honolulu Harbor with a crew of 284 U.S. Navy sailors and Marines. Thurston also drafted a letter to Ambassador John Stevens asking him to land troops from the Boston to, quote, prevent violence on the part of Liliu Kalani. When he was finished, the Attorney General took the letter and promised to deliver it on his way back to the palace. But something about the Attorney General's demeanor seemed off. Thurston had a feeling he would chicken out and destroy the letter. Which was exactly what happened. Stevens never received the note, but the cabinet did make good on their other promise. They returned to the palace and told the Queen they wouldn't sign the new constitution, at least not until they had ample time to look it over and make amendments. Under the Bayonet Constitution, Lily Ukulani couldn't legally act without the support of her cabinet. Unless they signed on, the Constitution would be legally toothless, so reluctantly she told the ministers to go home. But she vowed this wasn't the end of it. There'd be a new Constitution someday in the near future. Meanwhile, the Annexation Club members regrouped at William Smith's law office to strategize. The Queen's new constitution was the perfect pretext for the revolt they'd been waiting for, but there was still planning to do. To that end, they created a third secret group called the Committee of Safety. The committee consisted of 13 members, so nearly the entirety of the Annexation Club. As usual, Thurston was the most radical force within the group, he pushed openly for an armed coup d'etat against the Queen. They could scrounge together a militia, just like the Hawaiian League had done, and once the fighting began, Ambassador Stevens would send in U.S. troops to back them up. After all, Stevens was an ardent annexationist. They could count on his support. The next morning, they met with Stevens to discuss their plan. As expected, the ambassador was on board, to a point. He agreed that if there was an uprising, he'd land troops from the USS Boston, but he emphasized they wouldn't be fighting on either side. Their only objective was to protect American lives and property. Which meant they'd be protecting the insurrectionists. And the Queen's cabinet knew it. The Hawaiian military stood no chance against the U.S., they had to do something to defuse the situation before they had a war on their hands. So they drafted a proclamation for the Queen to sign, promising not to create a new constitution. Seeing the writing on the wall, 
Liliu Kalani reluctantly signed it the next morning. But that wasn't enough to stop the Committee of Safety. The wheels were already in motion for an armed rebellion. Coming up, the Committee of Safety launches their attack. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Now, back to the story. At 2 p.m. on January 16, 1893, Honolulu's business district came to a standstill. Shops closed their doors while the city's white businessmen gathered at the Honolulu Rifles Armory for a meeting. Various figures put the number of attendees between 1 and 3,000, although the actual number may have been much lower. It had been two days since Queen Liliuokalani tried and failed to institute a new constitution. The Committee of Safety had called their sympathizers together to make sure she didn't try again. Thurston gave the crowd a rundown of everything that had happened over the past couple days. He finished by reading off a series of resolutions denouncing the Queen and empowering the Committee of Safety to, quote, Secure the permanent maintenance of law and order and the protection of life, liberty, and property in Hawaii. The resolutions were adopted unanimously. But here's where the wires started to cross. Aboard the USS Boston, the captain was preparing to land troops in Honolulu at 4 p.m., right after the armory meeting. They were under the impression that by the time they got into position, there'd already be an uprising in progress. But as it happened, the Committee of Safety was running behind on recruiting their militia. Sure, they had hundreds or thousands of supporters at the armory, but very few of them owned firearms. Stevens had made it clear that the U.S. troops would back them up, but they wouldn't lead the charge. They needed more time to organize their own forces before they could begin. So Thurston and Smith went down to the American legation and asked Stevens to call off the troops until tomorrow. But it was too late. 162 Marines and sailors were already on the pier. Thus began an extremely awkward situation. The four companies of U.S. soldiers marched through the quiet streets of Honolulu for what seemed like no apparent reason. Thurston followed the troops on foot, watching his dreams of a successful revolution go up in flames. He'd been feeling under the weather for the past few weeks, and suddenly his body chose this moment to give out. 
He waved down a taxi and hurried home, where he finally collapsed. Meanwhile, Queen Liliu Kalani stepped out onto the balcony of her palace to watch a column of American troops pass by. The band gave her a drumroll and a bugle salute. Then they came to a sudden halt as commanders discussed their next moves. By now, the sun had set. It was clear to the soldiers there would be no revolution, at least not today. The only thing left to do was find a place to hunker down for the evening. With Thurston out of commission, several Committee of Safety members met that night to talk logistics. They'd found a shipment of illegal rifles at a local store and figured they could arm at least a hundred men for an attack the next day. But there was also the matter of creating a new government to take over after the Queen's dethroning. They needed a president, and for that, they turned to Sanford Dole. Dole was never a member of the Annexation Club, but he was respected by everyone in the group. So they summoned Dole to the meeting and offered him the presidency of the provisional government. At first, he flatly refused. But then he agreed to think it over and give them an answer in the morning. When they reconvened at 8 a.m., Dole still declined the offer. He wanted the queen out, but he thought toppling the entire monarchy was a bit extreme. If Liliu Kalani was dethroned, Dole thought she should be replaced by her rightful heir, her daughter Kayulani. Naturally, this idea was shot down by virtually everyone in attendance. The committee told Dole they were overthrowing the whole Hawaiian government, whether he liked it or not. He could either get on board or get out of their way. Eventually, he chose to accept it. The plan was to gather their forces at William Smith's office at 2 o'clock that afternoon. Then, they'd march for the government building, where they'd read a declaration proclaiming themselves the new provisional government. At that point, Ambassador Stevens would formally recognize the new regime, while U.S. troops were standing by to defend them. But when 2 p.m. arrived, only 18 armed men had gathered at Smith's office. The group set off for the government building anyway, and when they arrived, they found it completely undefended. That morning, the marshal had ordered 100 Hawaiian troops to be sent to the government building to stand guard. But the attorney general overruled the order, afraid that setting up their own soldiers would be seen as a provocation of war. So only one policeman was left to guard the government building. Eventually, another few dozen annexationists gathered, bringing their total forces to around 65 men. It was a small army, but they far outnumbered the one policeman. The U.S. troops, meanwhile, were still waiting inside the building next door where they'd spent the night. But the threat of their presence was all it took for the one lone policeman to fold. The annexationists took to the steps and read out a proclamation, declaring themselves the new provisional government. Sanford Dole led his men inside the government building, where he immediately signed two executive orders that Thurston had drafted from his bed that morning. Order number one, all residents must bring any weapons and ammunition they have to the government building. 
Order number two. Effective immediately, the island of Oahu was under martial law. That evening, the Queen's cabinet and advisors gathered at the palace to discuss the situation. They agreed that fighting the provisional government would lead to a war with the United States, a war they all knew they'd lose. So Lily Ukulani made a difficult decision. She surrendered. Specifically, she yielded her authority to the United States, not to the provisional government. She had a feeling that Ambassador Stevens was acting on his own authority and hoped that once the president heard about this, he might withdraw the troops and put her back on the throne. An unlikely possibility, but it was the only play she had left. At 10 o'clock the next morning, Liliu Kalani left the Iolani Palace. She claimed of her own accord. She took up residence in her family home across the street. Meanwhile, the provisional government was already moving into the palace. In the coming months, the thrones, crowns, even the carpets were removed and sold at auction. Meanwhile, Lauren Thurston recovered from his illness and joined an official envoy to the U.S., where they'd make the case for annexation. As we know, President Harrison was in favor of this proposal, but there was a small snag in the plan. In two months' time, he'd be replaced by President-elect Grover Cleveland, and no one was sure how he felt about the Hawaii situation. So Thurston and his colleagues worked with haste. Within two weeks, they had a treaty for Hawaiian annexation in front of the Senate, where they expected it to pass quickly under the current president's purview. But not quickly enough. On March 10th, President Cleveland's newly appointed Secretary of State withdrew the treaty from the Senate. That same day, he opened an investigation into the overthrow of Hawaii. The inquiry was led by James Blunt, the former House Foreign Relations Committee chair. On March 29th, Blunt arrived in Honolulu, where U.S. flags were flying at the port and above the government building. When he met with President Sanford Dole, Blunt told him that those flags had to come down. Needless to say, the provisional government was less than cooperative with Blunt's investigation. Some of the key figures of the coup, including Lauren Thurston, wouldn't talk to him at all. And since he was in Hawaii, a foreign country, he didn't have the power to subpoena witnesses. Still, Blunt was able to find ample evidence that Ambassador John Stevens and the Committee of Safety had conspired to overthrow the Queen. He sent his report to President Cleveland that October, along with a letter from the Secretary of State that said, quote, our government was the first to recognize the independence of the islands, and it should be the last to acquire sovereignty over them by force and fraud. By the end of the year, Cleveland sent the report on to Congress, emphasizing that he planned to put Queen Liliu Kalani back on the throne. But Stevens and Thurston got to share their side of the story, too. In their version, one full of lies and racist stereotypes, they claimed they deliberated the islands from an incompetent and despotic monarch. The press and public ate it up. 
For one thing, they found it hard to believe a U.S. ambassador had really overthrown a foreign government on his own accord, as the investigation claimed. For another, this was America. At the time, overthrowing monarchies was generally seen as cool. Their PR strategy was so effective that just a week after Blunt's report hit their desks, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee began their own investigation into Blunt's investigation. Based on the testimony of Stevens, they found his actions to be, quote, legitimate. To be clear, they didn't dispute that the U.S. ambassador had invaded a foreign nation and supported a coup d'etat. They just declared it was okay. President Cleveland had no power to reinstate Lilio Kalani without congressional approval, and by this point, it was clear that wasn't going to happen. The next year, on July 4, 1894, the provisional government became the permanent government of the Republic of Hawaii. The new constitution specifically appointed Sanford Dole as the nation's president. It took several more years for the pieces to come together, But in July 1898, Hawaii was officially annexed as a U.S. territory, despite the written protests of tens of thousands of Hawaiian residents. Sixty-one years later, the islands were admitted to the Union as the 50th state. The Kingdom of Hawaii was the first foreign government to be overthrown in a U.S.-backed coup, but it was far from the last. Over the years, America has conspired to overthrow leaders in Cuba, Iran, Chile, South Vietnam, and Nicaragua, just to name a few. In the case of Hawaii, however, the U.S. did eventually admit some wrongdoing. In 1993, Congress passed a joint resolution to, quote, offer an apology to native Hawaiians on behalf of the United States for the overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii. Nevertheless, the U.S. continued to involve itself in foreign regime changes. In fact, the very year after Congress apologized to Hawaii, the CIA secretly began planning a military coup in Iraq. What made the Hawaiian coup unique was the lack of official approval or involvement from the U.S. government. The president and secretary of state were warned it might happen, but really... The whole thing was the project of one rogue ambassador and a handful of private citizens. Acting entirely on their own authority, this group of conspirators went head-to-head against a foreign government. And they won. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. Next time, we'll jump a century ahead to another confirmed plot called Operation Midnight Climax, where in the 1950s, a clandestine group of CIA operatives tested the effects of LSD on unwitting civilians and got away with it. For more information, amongst the many sources we used in today's episode, we found Taking Hawaii by Stephen Dando Collins extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. 
We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Kate Gallagher, edited by Mallory Cara and Lori Gottlieb, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Bradley Klein, produced by Joshua Kern, and sound designed by Carrie Murphy. Conspiracy Theories is hosted by Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. Dahmer, Bundy, Gacy, Ramirez. You know the names, but do you know the whole terrifying story? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, take a horrific journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Some were charismatic, others were calculated, but all of them were disturbingly deadly. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.